Jackson Michael of The Game Before the Money. As you may likely know, The Game Before the Money is also now a weekly radio show airing nationwide on the Sports Map Radio Network and the Sports Map Radio app every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. for all of you in the Mountain Time Zone and 8 a.m. Pacific. Upton Bell shared some wonderful history about NFL players in World War II on the August 20th, 2022 edition of the radio show, but our conversation lasted well past what would fit into the program. So the rest of our conversation, including stories about Upton's dad, NFL Commissioner Burt Bell, courageously serving during World War I. That is presented here on this podcast. You'll hear a lot of stories that you've likely never heard before about Burt Bell in World War I, NFL icons like Chuck Bednarik and Gino Marchetti and their roles in World War II. You'll also hear about iconic coaches such as Tom Landry and Bum Phillips and their part in World War II. These are not well-known stories, but this is what the game before the money is all about, sharing the backstories of NFL history that might otherwise be lost. You've likely heard me say that football history is American history, and this really rings true in this episode. So here's Upton Bell, former Baltimore Colts and New England Patriots executive, former World Football League owner, and son of NFL Commissioner Burt Bell, giving a true history lesson about the heroes of the NFL at war. And we're going to focus a lot on World War II, but actually the story of NFL heroics in the U.S. military during wartime, that goes back all the way to World War I. It does, and, and I think one of the things that set the tone for Burt Bell, who later on became commissioner and owner, was what happened to him at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1917, he led them to the Rose Bowl and was one of the first people to threw the first pass in Rose Bowl history. That year coming back, Penn had a great season. But in the meantime, Burt Bell and a group of, of Penn players and other great athletes from Philadelphia decided, which you would, I don't think, see today, except for Pat Tillman, he decided that he was going to volunteer for the First World War with an Army hospital unit. So dramatically, he decided that he was going to do it. Other players said they were going to do it. So on Thanksgiving Day, the first time that Penn had been given permission since the Spanish-American War to actually play on Thanksgiving Day, they beat Cornell Thanksgiving Day. After the game, he and a group of uh, players from Penn marched down the armory and were sworn in in the hospital unit for the First World War. That night, they had a banquet and elected Burt Bell captain for 1918. Of course, he didn't play in 1918 because he was in the war. They were shipped to France. And in France, Burt Bell three times put his life on the line. The first time, and basically you have to understand something, you don't carry a weapon if you're assisting a hospital unit. It's like the MASH 
pictures and stuff that we know from the Korean War and other wars. You're there to protect the patients as much as you could. Now, there was close-level bombing in those times. And basically, one night, he was playing cards with a good friend of his. And uh, during that, they started to bomb. The next day, the sergeant or the major called for volunteers to stay behind enemy lines and escort three or four hundred badly wounded GIs away from the front. Bert Bell volunteered. He knew it probably would mean that he would die. So he volunteered and he started on this march. During the march, they were bombed in the open. His friend who he was playing cards with the night before was killed instantly. And I think that really kind of sent shockwaves through him. But he continued on and three more really dangerous times that he was involved with, he volunteered. He was finally asked to leave because of the danger. And not only that, he had gotten a terrible case of dysentery, but he refused to leave the front. After that, he was by General Pershing. He was distinguished by him as a war hero and other people, including eventually the president of France. The ironic thing is, Michael, he, along with some of the people we're going to talk about, never talked about it. I never knew the story until Bob Lyons wrote it in his book on Burke Bell on any given Sunday. Never knew it from his friend. He never talked about it. And that's kind of a theme that runs through the people you and I are going to talk about. It definitely is a theme. And a lot of these are really well-known icons in NFL history. Burt Bell, we're going to talk about Gino Marchetti. We're going to talk about Tom Landry. We're going to talk about Bum Phillips. These were guys who weren't uh, known at the time. They were, they were anonymous soldiers. Burt Bell was not a founder of an NFL team at that point or commissioner. Tom Landry was uh, still at the University of Texas as a freshman and he, that he left. So that's one thing that's important to remember, too. These are, these are just GIs. Well, they, they were. And the other thing about them was, uh, and it's a completely different world we live in today with social media and every player getting on selling every piece of slack he can sell. Understandable. These people not only never talked about the war, they were basically people that never talked about themselves. You never heard Marchetti when he would practically name somebody or Concrete Charlie. You never heard Bert Bell talk about it in spite of him having a broken nose two or three times. I never knew him with teeth. He had all his teeth knocked out in college. There was a breed of them. And I always said this about the First and Second World War is in my opinion, they're the only wars we ever won. After that, they were all ties. So those men that participated in that, there was a real feeling in the country that's, that this was the war to end all wars, that there was a feeling that we all had to go. And everybody, I mean, Bert Bell didn't have to go. Gino Marchetti didn't have to go. Art Donovan didn't have to go. But they thought it was their duty to their country. And I'm not here flag waving. I'm just telling you who these people were that I knew. And, and they were amazing. Aside from 
all the things that they did on the field. By the way, one of them says, which we'll get to in the next segment, Concrete Charlie. He said, I never thought anything about it. I'm getting the hell down there and, and I, I'm, I'm going there. I was living a good life. I'm going to volunteer. I'm in this fight. And I think that through these eyes of these men, we're going to see an America that we will never see again, where everybody, in spite of some things that were going on in the country, everybody was together. Everybody. That's hard to forget. Truly is. And, and you know, Burt Bell fought in World War One, and we're going to focus a lot on World War Two. And in the words of Hall of Fame coach Marv Levy, when he was asked about the importance of a, an upcoming game, he said, this isn't a must win. World War II was a must win. So the perception that these guys had was quite different, like you said, than the perception today. They, these guys signed up, sometimes impulsively, didn't really give it as much thought. Well, you know what, Michael? Probably if they did, they wouldn't have done it. They, they all talk <laughs> about every Everyone that we're going to talk about, uh, the ones that I'm going to talk about, one guy, Chuck Bednarik, said, I hate tattoos, but I got a tattoo. And somebody asked him why. He said, well, I expected to be killed, and I wanted my mother to know <laughs> that I was still around. So he put, put a tattoo on, on himself. And when he died, he still had the faded tattoo. But it wasn't because he loved tattoos. It was because he wanted his mother to know, well, here's the body somewhere. Amazing. Incredible stuff. And we're going to get more into that when we return to the game before the money on the SportsMap Radio Network and the SportsMap Radio app. Welcome back to the game before the money. I'm Jackson Michael with Upton Bell. And we were talking before about Upton's father, Burt Bell, joining the military effort in World War One, And then we got into NFL players who joined the war effort before their careers even started as part of World War II. And the NFL in World War II, we're going to explore how close the NFL really came to going under during those years. For example, the Rams didn't even play in 1943. Correct. And, and the league meeting going into that season ended up with a merger of two teams, the Eagles and Steelers. And there were two other teams, the Bears and Cardinals, that had come into that meeting wanting to merge. Upton, what, what can you give us about that? Well, you know, I, I think a couple things, going back to almost the first thing about Burt Bell, he was able to step in each time, and he didn't have great power yet, uh, step in each time when the NFL was in trouble. And in this case, he had sold the Eagles. He and Art Rooney became 50% partners, 50-50 in the Steelers. And, they, and he saw and went to Rooney and said, this league's going to, we have to do something because we're going to be out of business, you and me, Art. They had no money. And I'll tell you how bad it was. They had no money. In fact, just prior to that, they couldn't pay. They came to my, my father, a grocer, and said, you owe us $12,000 for your damn players. We have fed you all along for the last year or so. No more credit. 
we want the money. So he goes to Rooney and he said, there's only one way to survive here. He said, let's trade one of our better players to the Eagles, who we had sold to Lex Thompson. And he said, uh, we'll sell them for cash. And I think Rooney looked at him and said, what the hell are you doing? And he said, we got to pay the food bill. We don't eat. We don't play. The players walk out. And one of the most interesting trades written about, he trades one of the top players with the Steelers to the Eagles for $12,000, maybe a little bit more cash, runs down and pays the grocer. <laughs> that saves the team. Now, people laugh and say that they couldn't be, but it was. But what he learned from that in going to the league meetings was the league was ready to shut down. World War II, we can't do it. We're merging. We have other people that want to merge. What do we do? And Bell said, we need to take a vote because I can tell you now, if you close down now, you'll never open again. And I will tell you the other thing. On the horizon is a new conference called the All-America Conference. And they are ready to pounce as soon as the war is over. So you're, you're in trouble twofold. One, because we can't make it unless we continue to play. And two, we have a new league that are coming on the rise. And he was right about both. He finally convinced them. But by only one vote, Michael, did the NFL stay alive. One vote. And we might all be AAFC fans had that vote not happened, gone the way that it did and kept the NFL going. Not only that, uh, the interesting part of it was how many people denied later on that they voted against it. You know, it's like everything else with owners. You know, it looks good when you can say publicly. But when you think about it, if he doesn't convince them by only one vote, you're right. It's not only that. But, but remember, still, college football and baseball were so big. The NFL, even though they had the monsters of the midway and, and occasionally great big names, the great Cardinals team of, of uh, 47, that basically America wasn't paying a hell of a lot of attention to the NFL. So if they had gone away, maybe the All-America Conference with the Browns and the 49ers and some of the other teams, maybe they've been fine, but maybe not, because out of sight, out of mind. Let's say you close down in 42 or 43. Now, until the war is over in 45, and the teams reassemble in 46. That's roughly about four years for people to say, we don't miss you. What's going on? That was a real possibility. And a lot of the NFL stars went to war they they enlisted in the war effort sid luckman uh, quarterback of the chicago bears is the first that comes to mind um but not only that there were a lot of future nfl stars who are relatively unknown uh, who were unknowns at the time who joined the war effort as well you, you referred to the philadelphia eagles great chuck bednarik earlier let's talk a little bit about him and and his decision to join well, the people I'm going to talk about, Concrete Charlie, Art Donovan, Gino Marchetti, and Chuck Bednarik, all are in the Hall of Fame. They all joined, and let's start off with Concrete Charlie, who, by the way, 
even today, if you mention Concrete Charlie on social media, even though he's been gone for years, people immediately know it's Chuck Pedner. Probably the greatest two-way player, I don't care what era, you'll never see again the 60-minute man. But he talks about, and I know his son-in-law very well, and Chuck talks about, he would never talk about it until he was interviewed by Ray Dittinger, the Hall of Fame writer for the Philadelphia paper. And he said, basically, he said, I was having a good time in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I didn't give a damn about anything. I was a kid. He said, but by the age 18, I thought, all right, I'll do something. So he went down and he volunteered. They sent him to gunnery school. And he ended up, he was so good at gunnery school, he was put in the most dangerous position you could be put in, in a B-26 or B-29 bomber. You were the tail gunner. You were the guy that, that was the only thing that was defending that plane as they were trying to drop their bombs over Germany. And basically what he did is incoming. He talked about it. There was flak. The minute you got up there and you got over Germany, unallied territory, you would see the flak coming. And then the, the Luftwaffe, which, which was a lead at the time, they'd be flying all around. They'd buzz all around you. And so you're trying to shoot through the flak, and that plane's flying all around you. You see the, the bombers on your wing. You see terrible things when some are shot down, and you look, and you see they're going down, and you see no parachute. And he said, it's awful that you see that. And you see that there's no protection. He said, the noise is unbelievable. And you flew then. They didn't do night bombing. They flew during the daylight. He flew 40 missions over there. 27,000 pilots were killed. He barely made it back on, the, on his final mission. And he talked about it. He, he thought that they were going to end up in the ocean. But they barely limped back. And afterwards, there was a tradition for flyers, that when you came back to the meeting room to report what happened, there'd be a bottle of liquor on the table. And he said each person would take a drink out of it. And he said he was so nervous and people were so upset because he had seen death and everything else like that. The bottle would be gone in like five minutes, just trying to calm your nerves. And he said that was the thing that kind of got them through. And he said, he never thought he would make it. Most of his people did not make it. But imagine being a tail gunner. I mean, I'm not particularly in love with flying, and I've flown it most of my life. Imagine being up there and going through this hell. That was Concrete Charlie. And he said the same thing that Marchetti and Donovan told me, and a, and a player at the Bears camp told me, that basically you played with a violence in the game of football because that violence that you learn in the war it carried over and you played with a completely different mission than other people who are playing the game yeah and tom landry had a similar statement in his autobiography talking about how he left for the war a freshman not knowing if he could even play southwest conference football and he came back a grizzled war veteran and the things that kind of concerned him about his talents in football uh, didn't seem to bother him as much anymore. You know, Coach Landry joined the Army Air Corps after his brother was 
lost. His plane went missing over the North Atlantic and Landry left the University of Texas as a freshman. He ended up flying 30 combat missions over Europe in a B-17. And like Concrete Charlie, he almost didn't make it out. He had a crash landing in France. After they ran out of fuel, they crashed in a field and hit a tree. The wings of the airplane were actually clipped off. And thankfully, everyone survived the crash. But we're talking about two NFL legends, Tom Landry and Chuck Bednarik, that almost didn't make it out of World War II. Well, there, there are other ones. Uh, and the great thing for me is in talking, knowing about my father later on, but Donovan, Marchetti, Bednarik, all of them I knew. So I, you know, I knew what they were like away from war and in football. And again, as I said, they didn't talk about, but, but Marchetti is another fascinating story. He said, I was riding around one day. He said, with my girlfriend, and he said, I saw this poster about joining the infantry. And he said, oh, what the hell? Now think about this today. He said, oh, what the hell? Might as well do it. Now, a little backstory on him that people don't know. Gino the Giant never made initially his high school team. They said he stunk. He finally got somebody to get him a uniform and eventually end up being a great player in college and going on. But he never made his high school team initially. So he joins and ends up in the one battle that decided the war in Europe, and that was the Battle of the Bulge. When the Germans broke out, surrounded the Americans, and the famous thing when they asked the general to surrender, he said nuts, that famous one line. So Marchetti tells the story. He said, you know, I end up in Europe. And Gino always talked about things matter-of-factly. There was nothing ever that he said like, oh, what a terrible time. Concrete Charlie would tell you it was a terrible time. Marchetti would never know anything. So he's telling this story to National Public Radio. He said, you know, we're in the forest. And he said, uh, we're part of the outlook. And we're all in kind of the same area together. And our relief comes. And the people come and say, and you know, it's time for us to relieve you. And he said, ah, go ahead. Forget, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do the extra duty tonight. They didn't think anything was going to happen. He said like five minutes later, he hears this whistle coming in, and he keeps hearing it get closer and closer and closer. And he said in, in that moment, because he thought he was going to die, he, he, and, and you hear this from other players, the flashback, like Bednarik with the tattoo, so mom knows who I am that it, he's thinking to myself, all those times I got in those arguments with my mother in the kitchen, I threw things and I did all these things. Oh my God, I just want to live long enough to tell her when I get back home, I'm so sorry with what I did. And that shell barely missed him or he'd have been dead like that. Which brings us to Fatso, Art Donovan, who fought, actually was a, a, a one of the major people in, in Iwo Jima and also in the great battle of Midway that in the end kind of reestablished our superiority of the air, Admiral Bull Halsey, 
famous battle that kind of saved the Americans' bacon. And in that, he was a gunner. And if you can imagine the, the kamikazes coming in, you can imagine all of the things that happened. He told once told somebody, Iwo Jima was terrible, the things that he saw. But this is a guy also. He never talked about it. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met. They wanted to run for mayor of Baltimore. And Gino Marchetti used to call him Fatso. Say, hey, Fatso, get the hell out of the way. You Fatso and Big Daddy fell on Gino's leg and broke it in that famous game that made the NFL in 1958. And Marchetti, jumping back to him, said, they're going to take me off the field. He refused to leave the field. Now, when you had a broken leg in those days, if you didn't set it quickly, you could be in real trouble. It ain't like today when you can get, you know, you're in and out and you're back playing in like six games. And Marchetti, I can remember because I was at the game with my glasses on him, looking down and he's, he's refusing. And it's very dangerous because he was right on the sideline. And so he talked about the pain he was in, but then he went back to the Second World War and, and, and somebody said, you better get the hell off the field. Get that goddamn stretcher off the field. And he said, this is nothing, he thought, compared to what I faced in the Battle of the Bulge or some of the other battles. Finally, they were forced to take him off the field. But he said, in the key play, Michael, that has been shown, I don't know how many times, including ESPN, he said, I had the joy of knowing that I stopped Gifford on that first down. If Gino doesn't stop him on that play, with Big Daddy piling on and Donovan, the Giants win the championship. There is no sudden death. And he said every time he would see Frank Gifford in the future, Gifford would say, you know, I made I made that damn first down. And Gino would say, you made the first down. You didn't make the first down. I got the ring. See you later. So all of them kind of went back to that time and how the war made them as football players because this was easy pickings compared to being up in a plane or invading Iwo Jima or Midway. Yeah, and talking about the Pacific Theater and um, that phase of the war, you know, Bump Phillips was part of the Marine Raiders under President Roosevelt's son, James Roosevelt. And, and when people, people don't know this stuff. This I got from Bum Phillips' autobiography. They landed on an island and they were outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Japanese forces holding that island down. He said that the first time they were told to move, 50 people from his group moved. And the second time they moved, only 12 moved forward because they had suffered so many casualties. And in fact, uh, two-thirds of that regiment were either wounded or killed. Um, they ran out of ammo. They had to do hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is Bum Phillips. And you would never hear him talk about that during his time as a head coach of the Houston Oilers. But are you it, surprised? <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. He, with that great personality. He I had all I'm those. I'm not surprised. Yeah. He had all those great sayings. You know, there are only two coaches, them's, them's that's fired and them's that's going to get fired. You know, he had all those great Yogi Berra-like sayings, but you would never know 
how close he came to getting killed in World War II. In fact, when he got home stateside, he had to be treated for malaria in Oklahoma. He had malaria. He had jaundice over in the Pacific as well. So a lot of NFL history could have been changed just on guys not coming back from war. And like you've alluded to, they they never really talked about it. Sometimes they bring it up in their autobiographies in the end. But, you know, when you watch Art Donovan on The Tonight Show. Um, With Letterman, classic. Right. It, it was classic. And, you know, the, I will say this. Of all the players that I've been around 70-plus years, up to today, the most mature players in any sport that I've ever met are the players in the NFL. There, there was a maturity way beyond their age. You know, by 22 or 23, when they came back, some not till 25, there was a look in their eye. There, there was a feeling to be around them. You know, you, you're around players today in any sport. But let's just take football. They're young. They're much more athletic. They, you know, they're full of life and everything else like that. I'll never forget the look in the eyes of these people. It was almost like they might be smiling, but there was kind of that dead look in those eyes. Um, and, and I just remember even as a kid, although I never felt that I was really ever a kid, I'd look at the age of nine at the Bears camp. I remember this one day, it was in my father's first year as commissioner, and so he sent his two sons out to be at the Bears camp. I loved that. Are you kidding me? Staying away from all those executives that could be around players, which I was around most of my life. And there was this one particular practice. And I was sitting on a tackling dummy watching. Th th these are the Bears of Bulldog Turner and, and George McAfee and Sid Luckman and, and Ed Sprinkle, all guys, Hall of Famers, all had come back from the war, as you pointed out with Luckman. And there was this vicious hit. And you got to remember, in those days, today everything's controlled. You only can work out a certain amount of time. You can't hit somebody. Then it was pure mayhem. I mean, you might as well have blown the whistle and said, I'll be back in a half an hour. Anybody that you can carry off the field, carry them off. <laughs> so there was this one particular play. And I won't name the player because I, I don't think he would want it known. And I was kind of upset. He was lying on the ground. Somebody just about dismantled him. And he saw me, and, and I never really cried, but he saw that I was upset. He kind of came over after he got up, and he, he said, are you all right? And I said, well, geez, that, that was really hard. I didn't say terrible. And he said something to the fact that I'm paraphrasing, this ain't nothing when you're killing people. And I'll never forget it. And you were just a child back then at an NFL training camp. Nine years old as a child. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it was. But you see those people and, you, and then you compare them, as I said before, Michael, to the players of today are much bigger, quicker, faster, stronger. I'm not necessarily saying smarter, although the game is much more complex. And you think back to those other people and you say, if I'm going to fall in love with an athlete, it would be those guys. 
Thank you for listening to The Game Before the Money. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. The Game Before the Money is a 501c3 nonprofit, so you can also make donations online at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions of some podcasts are also available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics, spelled S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more. And remember, you can listen to The Game Before the Money every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern on the SportsMap Radio Network and the SportsMap Radio app. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to Upton Bell. Upton is the author of the book Present at the Creation and the University of Massachusetts at Amherst features the Upton Bell Collection. I'm Jackson Michael. 